Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we start with Kimball Art Museum director Eric Lee. The Kimball recently acquired a rare Amadeo Medigliani sculpture, Head, from around 1913. Only about 27 Medigliani sculptures survive. It was a gift from a private collector and is on view now at the Kimball. Then Michelle White joins me to discuss Herman Neal collection exhibition Between Land and Sea, Artists of the Coentes Slip. The show looks at the early work of six artists, Carissa, Robert Indiana, Ellsworth Kelly, Agnes Martin, Lenore Tawney, and Jack Youngerman, all of whom lived in an East River-adjacent neighborhood substantially apart from the rest of the Manhattan art world. It's on view through August 6th. But first, Eric Lee, after a break. An irresistible and captivating exhibition is on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Louise Lawler, Why Pictures Now?, is the first major survey in New York of Lawler's work, which, over the past four decades, has offered a defiant, witty, and feminist analysis of art's production and reception. The exhibition offers the artist's response to the present moment. Get more info and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Medardo Rosso Experiments in Light and Form on view through May 13th. Instrumental in expanding the definition of sculpture for the modern era, Italian artist Medardo Rosso employed innovative casting and modeling techniques in plaster, bronze, and wax, creating surfaces that were sensitive to the transient effects of light and shadow. On view now in its final weeks and featuring nearly 100 works, including sculptures, drawings, and photographs, most of which have never been exhibited outside of Europe, This critically acclaimed exhibition explores Rosso's varied efforts to understand, capture, and manipulate light in his art. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Eric Lee, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks, Tyler. It's good to be here. Congratulations on the acquisition. Obvious first question, how did you come to get it? We got it through the generosity of Gwendolyn Weiner, and Gwen uh, is the daughter of Ted and Lucille Weiner, and they were collectors of modern sculpture here in Fort Worth in the 1950s and 60s. And Gwen helped her father acquire this sculpture. She picked it out with her father in 1963 from the Nerdler Gallery in New York, and uh, she is an incredibly generous woman. And she thought of the Kimball as a great permanent home for the sculpture, and she gave it to us. And it fills a couple of major gaps in the Kimball's collection. We had no early modern sculpture. We had later modern sculptures, which are outdoors on the grounds, but nothing from the early decades of the 20th century. We also did not have a Modigliani in any medium. So this this work happily fills two major gaps in the Kimball's collection. A couple questions about the actual sculpture itself before we get into the time and context of its making. The Kimball is dating it to around 1913. We think it's 1913. And the dating of all of his sculptures is uncertain. Art historians earlier tended to date the sculpture from the beginning of his career in sculpture, you know, 1910, 1911. And the thinking was that he progressed from this more rounded form to the more elongated forms that he's very well known for. 
And more recently, art historians have, have connected the sculpture with drawings from 1914 and 15, later drawings, that also show this more rounded form. And so they've tended to, to date it a bit later, around 1913 or so. We know that he abandoned sculpture in early 1914. Since we've acquired the sculpture, we've been studying this photograph that shows Modigliani working on the sculpture in a courtyard. And we think that this photograph probably dates from the summer of 1913. And why we say that, he's seen with short hair in the photographs, in this, this one particular photograph. And we know that Modigliani had his head shaved when he went home to Livorno in the spring of 1913 uh, when he was sick. A number of his contemporaries commented on how he looked with this shaved head. And so we think that since he clearly shows short hair in this photograph, it seems likely that the sculpture was carved in the summer of 1913. He's also wearing summer clothes in, in this photograph. That's, that's great, Forensics. We'll have that, that photograph on manpodcast.com. Just to fill in one thing, uh, Livorno in Italy, on the, on the west coast of Italy, due west of Florence, was Medigliani's. It used to be known as Leghorn in English. Yeah, and it's Medigliani's hometown. One of the reasons the dating of, of the sculpture is interesting is that in 1913, Ivory Coast sculpture, a Bollet sculpture, was exhibited in Paris at the Gallery uh, Levesque in, in what is believed to be the first installation to display African sculpture as fine art and alongside works from Asia, Egypt, and even North American or South American pre-Columbian antiquities. Do we are there any relationships between your new sculpture and and Ivory Coast work that that you think might be be relevant or interesting? Well, there's certainly a strong links between Modigliani's and Ballet Mask. I think you don't see it to quite the same extent in the sculpture that we have here. The forms are rounded, but you know you, you can see yes, there's definitely a trace of it there, but it, it doesn't seem to be as direct as with some of the more elongated Modigliani sculptures. But he was also looking at, uh, in addition to African African uh, mask, um, he was looking at Khmer sculpture from the Guimet Museum in Paris. He was looking at ancient Greek sculpture, Cycladic sculpture, Egyptian art. And I think the, the greatest similarity between our sculpture and other possible prototypes is a Celtic head. And we actually don't know that Modigliani was looking at Celtic heads. It could be a pure coincidence that there is a resemblance between our sculpture and Celtic heads, but I think there definitely is an affinity there. But he was looking at archaic sculptures and works of art from a variety of cultures. One of his neighbors, colleagues, friends was the sculptor Jacques Lipschitz, who said that Medigliani was, quote, very taken with the notion that sculpture was sick, that it had become very sick with Rodin and his influence. There was too much modeling in clay, too much mud. The only way to save sculpture, Lipschitz said, was to start carving again, that Lipschitz said Medigliani said. The only way to save sculpture was to start carving again, direct carving in stone. Does your new sculpture show kind of physical evidence of Modigliani thinking that? 
Absolutely. In fact, you can see the chisel marks that he made with his mallet all over the sculpture. And that's one of the things that does not really come through so well in photographs. And you can really see the sculpture, the process of its making. It also is emerging out of this rough-hewn stone, uh, much like Michelangelo's slave emerged from, from the stone. And Modigliani, we know, greatly admired Michelangelo's slaves, and so one can't help but see a similarity there and perhaps an inspiration in Michelangelo as, as well. But you see chisel marks all over the sculpture. They look like three-dimensional brushstrokes of Cezanne. It's really wonderful, the chisel marks that are left. In fact, in the lighting in the Kimball Galleries, these chisel marks are so much more apparent. When we first received the sculpture and had, had it in the conservation lab, we didn't notice the chisel marks to quite the same extent that we do upstairs in the galleries. But it's uh, really wonderful seeing them. And, I, and they do remind me of three-dimensional Cezanne brushstrokes. There's another great Lipschitz quote in which he recounts conversations he had with Medigliani and, and quoting Lipschitz again. Medigliani said that the stone itself made very little difference. The important thing was to give the carved stone the feeling of hardness. And that came from within the sculptor himself, regardless of what stone they use. Some sculptors make their work look soft, but others can use even the softest of stones and give their sculpture hardness. Indeed, his own sculpture, Lipschitz talking about Medigliani, his own sculpture shows how he used this idea. Does yours look hard? Yes, the, the sculpture looks extremely hard. And there's some soft stones that I think are easy to carve. And I don't know whether this limestone was easy to carve or not, but it certainly looks that way. But I do know that a sense of hardness in the material was, was very important to Modigliani. And speaking of Lipschitz, the Wieners had a number of sculptures by Lipschitz, and they invited Lipschitz to their home once. And Gwen tells the story that when Lipschitz saw the Modigliani head, he actually started weeping, thinking about his, his younger years in Paris with Modigliani. And he, he told Gwen the story about how Modigliani would scavenge around building sites in Paris looking for stone for his sculptures. And it's a great memory, I think, from, uh, from Gwen of Lipschitz. Medigliani was a prodigious drawer. He made drawings for his sculptures. He made drawings to, to, to buy drinks, you know, on, on the spot. Do we know if there are any drawings related to this sculpture? Well, there are a couple of drawings that are very similar to the sculpture. We don't know for sure that they're directly related to the sculpture or not. One is a capital, and the sculpture clearly is not a capital, but it does uh, have a head that's very similar to the head that holds up the capital and, and the drawing. There are also uh, portraits of Beatrice Hastings, Modigliani's English muse and lover. And it does make one wonder if it could possibly be a portrait of Beatrice Hastings. Of course, that's, it probably isn't, but there is an affinity there, I think, to his portraits of Beatrice Hastings. What about paintings? Are there any paintings that seem related to the sculpture? I mean, one of the one of the ones I thought of, even though it's many years later, is Medigliani's 1916 dual portrait of, of Jacques Lipschitz and his wife, in which Lipschitz's head 
is 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 rounded like this sculpture's head is and which really even kind of the the lips and the slight upturning of the lips especially in one corner kind of seem to be similar i mean i don't i'm not suggesting that that your head is a portrait of Lipschitz or anything just that there was kind of a, a language that Medigliani was working in uh, yes he he definitely had not only he he not only depicted elongated heads but also rounder heads and you see that both in sculptures and in his paintings and we know that he didn't go through a period of of producing more rounded heads and then moving on to elongated heads but he would move back and forth between the two styles but yes he definitely produced more rounded heads in both painting and sculpture it was interesting with sculpture he when he was producing sculpture it's uh, some people say 1909 to early 1914 others say probably mid 1910 to early 1914 but during that period he produced almost entirely uh, just sculptures and and drawings for those sculptures he considered himself first and foremost a sculptor though today we of course uh, know him uh, as a painter but he stopped sculpting either late 1913 or early 1914 for a number of reasons one was financial it was much more expensive and difficult to acquire the materials to make sculpture it would take longer to produce and the market for sculptures was not as great as for paintings he could sell a painting much more easily than he could sell a sculpt a sculpture health reasons also was were a factor he had tuberculosis and the dust from the uh, sculpting damaged his lungs. And so um, for health reasons, he also went back to painting, though he always considered himself first and foremost a sculptor. Do we know if he exhibited this sculpture during his life? I mean, he, he showed, I think, seven sculptures in the 1912 Salon de Tom. He held some private viewings in Livorno in 1913, and I think he self-hosted a two-person show in Paris in 1913. Do we know if, if, if he showed it? We don't know that he showed it. Definitely not in the 1912 exhibition photograph showing those uh, those sculptures. And, and now we don't think it was probably made by then. But we don't have any other record of it being exhibited during his lifetime. It could have been in one of these shows but we just don't know it. The record, of course, that we have from his lifetime is this photograph showing him working on, on the sculpture. But the first time it was publicly exhibited that we are sure about is the 1951 Museum of Modern Art exhibition. And so I think that was the first time it was publicly exhibited. And where in the museum is it? And do you have any future plans yet to do anything around the work? Well, it's currently exhibited in the North Galleries of the Kimball. We have this great collection of modern paintings. But as I said before, until now, we had no early modern sculptures in, in the collection. No sculpture at all from the first half of the 20th century. So uh, it looks great in these galleries. And uh, before uh, receiving this gift, I had long looked at those galleries and thought, gosh, what we need is a great a great modern sculpture, but you know, now now we have a great Modigliani. In the future, I'm sure we will we will plan programs and who knows maybe some sort of a exhibition around it. But we haven't decided quite what to do yet.
Eric Lee, congratulations again, and thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Tyler. Join us at the Getty to explore the visual, verbal, and sonic experiments of the concrete poetry movement in the exhibition Concrete Poetry, Words and Sounds in Graphic Space. Using visual patterns of words or letters and other typographical devices, the shape of these poems convey as much or more than the words themselves. With works from contemporary poets and artists such as Augusto de Campos and Ian Hamilton Finlay, Concrete Poetry, Words and Sounds in Graphic Space is on view now through July 30th. Visit getty.edu to plan your visit. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Andrea Chung, You Broke the Ocean in Half to Be Here, at its downtown location from May 19th through August 20th. For her first solo museum exhibition, artist Andrea Chung presents a new immersive installation together with selected prints and collages that explore legacies of colonialism and migration in the Caribbean. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Welcome back. Next up, Manil curator Michelle White, who joins me to discuss her exhibition Between Land and Sea, Artists of the Coentes Slip. The show looks at six artists, all of whom who lived at substantial remove from the Manhattan art world, and considers moments of communication and influence among them. It's on view through August 6th. Michelle White, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me. Where was the Coentes Slip, uh, and why did so many artists gather there in the 1950s? Well, Coenti Slip was down, or still is, you can still visit, down in the lower seaport of lower Manhattan, so not far from the South Street seaport. And part of my research for this show is answering that question, why did so many artists congregate in this very uh, remote area of the city? You know, in part, when we think about the geographic location of Coenti Slip, Part of it is that it was removed. It was far away from what was happening in Midtown with the Abex Circle, for example. They were, these artists were very sort of consciously trying to remove themselves from more mainstream trends in abstraction and started to gather around this particular area. Ellsworth Kelly was one of the first artists to move there. He was on the GI Bill in Paris and came in the mid-1950s. Soon thereafter, a lot of other artists started to come. One reason that I've traced of why these artists were gathering together has to do with Betty Parsons. Betty Parsons was really encouraging a lot of these artists first to move to New York City. So Ellsworth Kelly, Jack Youngerman. Agnes Martin. Agnes Martin. Most of these artists were showing with Betty Parsons. Was that the kind of thing where Betty Parsons had scouted out the space or just that she was encouraging them to move to New York and there was a network in place by which they might know each other and thus have access to a building, buildings or area? Yeah, I think a little bit of both. I think she was surely attempting to cultivate an artist community around her artists. But also this was just about a sort of system or network, like you said. Jack Youngerman, for example, studied on the GI Bill in Paris with Ellsworth Kelly. So when he was deciding to move to New York, he came and visited Ellsworth Kelly at the Slip um, and ended up moving there. So you've sort of got kind of both things happening at the time. And rents were really cheap there. So in many ways, this is considered one of the first areas of these industrial loft space where artists were living. They were cold 
water flats. So there's no hot water. This was rough living on the edge of the river. So this, it, it also allowed them to live in large spaces inexpensively. You mentioned that the Coenty slip artists such as Agnes Martin and Ellsworth Kelly and, and Carissa gathered there because the place was kind of a refuge from Abex, New York. Abex, New York was heterosexual, male-dominated, hard-drinking. You know, it's been quite well historicized. Was part of the motivation to be apart from that group, not just being apart from their kind of art, Abex painting, but being apart from that kind of heterosexual, male-dominated, often anti-gay Midtown Abex group? Well, it's certainly a fascinating way to think about this group of artists apart from the Abex circle. And it's certainly something that needs more research. But yes, if you think about this group of artists, with the exception of Jack Youngerman, who's sort of the only straight person of the group, and Jack was raising a very nuclear family down in the slip, these artists were, were also apart from that, from, from what was happening uptown in that very heterosexual energy that was associated with abstract expressionism. And of course, Pollock was, you know, pretty eagerly and and violently anti-gay. And I'm sure they all knew it. Right. And, you know, another part of this show for me to explore that I think is so fascinating is that, yes, you've got this sort of remove from abstract expressionism, but part of that is this formal remove. And what I was trying to do in this show was trace these sort of formal correspondences between these artists' work in a way you might not typically associate Agnes Martin to the early work of Robert Indiana, for example. But suddenly when we look at this very tiny period of time, we can see how these artists were looking to the natural world to derive their abstraction. And that's that's also entirely unique from abstract expressionism, right? They were trying, instead of trying to remove nature, they were bringing it back in. Well, let's jump into the work right there. So we're going to talk about a bunch of specific artworks um, over the next little bit. We will have images of all of these on manpodcast.com. So the most, the work in the show that is most obviously related to nature is Teasel, a 1949 Ellsworth Kelly uh, work on paper at the MFA Houston and in the show. Is that the only work that is kind of directly related to the natural world, or are there some other ones that... that that you think are are good examples of that? Oh, there's a lot of examples. That's probably the most obvious because it's a clear representation of of a plant form. But we can also see nature coming into the composition of the Lenortani weaving, which is called seaweed. So I think one of the most beautiful parts of that fiber work is how she's articulating the aquatic plants by drawing with the threads. The Agnes Martin Horizon certainly deals with the language of the landscape and the landscape tradition. So you have bars of horizontal lines with triangles. So it's absolutely dealing with the tension between abstraction and representation by bringing in these mountain-like forms. And also the Jack Youngerman painting, the, the large blue and yellow and green painting is based on Jack's study of light reflecting off the side of a rocky cliff. That's that's an extraordinary painting. That's also in Houston at the MFA. What is that painting called? And was it likely informed by what he and Kelly were doing in Paris? 
Oh, it certainly was. You know, they were both, I talked to Jack quite a bit about this. They were both studying on the GI Bill, both thinking about new ways of dealing with abstraction. So the other work in the exhibition that I'm putting in dialogue is not only the Jack Youngerman painting, but the Ellsworth Kelly painting, Rollo Blue, which is also a long horizontal composition of blue and white. You know, they're both very horizontal and, and I mean, the Kelly's only 17 and a half inches tall and it's nearly 10 feet wide. The Youngerman is, is bigger, but kind of similar in proportion. I'm guessing they were both made at Coenti's Slip. Is there any evidence that, I mean, one's a, the Kelly's a 51 painting, the Youngerman's a 53. Any evidence that they were going back and forth over them? No. And, you know, in fact, these works represent the earliest works in the exhibition made just before they moved to the slip. So we know they were made in Paris. The Rocky Cliff is specific. The title of the work is, is translates as a, a Rocky Cliff. So we, we do know um, that they were both done in Paris, but this was part of my setup. So these are the beginning of the exhibition. So what I'm trying to argue is that these artists were engaged in an approach to abstraction that was that was derived from looking out into the world and deriving abstract forms from from the world, um, which is what I'm arguing differentiates this group of work from their abstract expressionist contemporaries. And this is what then they they brought to the slip was this desire to rearticulate abstraction at the time. Is the untitled fifty five Youngerman painting in the show? Does it also have a, a, a recognizable or findable natural source? Because it hovers. <laughs> it does hover. And that's so, you know, there's always a lot of these works, there's that tension between abstraction and figuration, abstraction, and this idea of these natural forms seeping in. So while we may not see a direct uh, link to a specific type of foliage, for example, that we see in the Ellsworth Kelly plant drawing, we can certainly see how his abstract forms are inspired by looking at leaves or trees or foliage. It's certainly there. Two other works I wanted to to bring up are the two Ellsworth Kelly tablet works on paper that are in the show. I, I guess before we get to them, what were Kelly's tablets? So the tablets is are a series of works that we have at the Manila Collection. It's over 180 basically boards where Kelly, towards the end of his life, assembled scraps and sketches and fragments and ephemera from a studio and assembled them on boards. So what is so significant and remarkable about Tablet in this corpus of work is that we can see how Kelly derived his thinking about forms and shapes from direct sources. So, you know, we can see how he's outlining contours on an advertisement or how he's clipping fragments of an image of the Brooklyn Bridge or how he's cutting out a piece of paper that then goes on to inspire a sculpture. There's folded gum wrappers. I mean, this really becomes a, a document in many ways of tracing the origins of so many of Kelly's abstract paintings. It's almost like Kelly is creating a visual memoir slash visual concordance on on single pieces of paper, I guess. 
So he's not saying exactly that there are one-to-one relationships here, but he's saying that it's okay to think they are. They think there are. <laughs> Maybe not. Let's see. I think it's more that he's not inventing the forms. The forms are already invented. And part of his process is seeking those forms out in the world. And it's tablet that actually gives us the most revealing clues on where some of those forms could have come from, or even demonstrates how he looked at so many things out in the world to, to think about how his forms would, would come to be. So the two tablets that are in this show echo between each other, I think. We'll have images on manpodcast.com. Do you think they echo in any of the other works in the show? Certainly. And I will draw attention first to what's my favorite uh, fragment in the tablet I'm including is you can see how Eldrick Kelly cut out a shape in the back of an envelope. And the back of the envelope, if you look very closely, is addressed to Agnes Martin at Coenti Slip. So what I love about this fragment is one, not only that it kind of demonstrates how sort of Kelly is sort of working with shapes and forms from the stuff of everyday life, but how close he was to Agnes Martin. At the time, Kelly and Martin were having breakfast together every morning for a year and a half. I mean, it's a relationship we don't often know about in art history of how close they were. And what I was really excited about in this show is just thinking about these forms and these repetitive forms also coming out in the work of Agnes Martin. Mm. Is there a good example in the show? I think Horizon, for example, where you can see the, I was talking about the work previously, where you have the registers of lines, uh, horizontal lines of triangles. So I really associate that to the landscape and to the ocean, looking out on the water, something that Elsworth Kelly was doing at the time. So the other uh, fragment in the tablet that I have on view is images of the Brooklyn Bridge. And the Brooklyn Bridge is so important here. So most of these studios, because Coente Slip is basically like a triangle, it's a filled-in inlet, so most of their studios directly face the water. They all have views of the ocean. The Brooklyn Bridge is just north of the river where they're, they're facing. So the Brooklyn Bridge becomes a really important symbol uh, for them and how they sort of related uh, so closely to the ocean. And certainly in so many paintings by Ellsworth Kelly of this time, you can see bridge-like forms in his work. Even Agnes Martin's The Book, the 1959 painting, the title of the painting gives rise to a very specific association between the white rectangles in the painting. But once you begin to think about those white voids as maybe being voids in the Brooklyn Bridge... Certainly, right? And I mean, in addition to seeing those white spaces as almost like an open book. But yes, the the empty sort of forms that you can see in the, the shape of the Brooklyn Bridge. So speaking of, uh, of relationships among the group, there are a number of works by Krissa here. Before we get to them, I couldn't help but noticing that the show is pretty evenly, fairly evenly split between the men and the women, something not many shows of New York of the 50s and 60s do maybe you're not able to do, maybe do not choose to do. Did you have to go out of your way to clear your throat that way? Or was that just what was there at Coenty Slip? Well, you know, there has been a few exhibitions on Coenty Slip. In fact, there's been two. 
There was one at Pace Gallery in 1993, and then there was one in 1973 in the Whitney Independent Studio Program organized for the Whitney location down, downtown. And in both of those shows, the presence of these three women, aside from maybe Agnes Martin, who's the most well-known, are pretty much left out. Lenore Tawney and Krista were not included in the Pace show. And to me, when I started doing research around this show, I was really conscious of making sure there was an equal balance, not only because that's the way it was, and these are the artists that were were in this circle, but also because I felt so strongly that Lenore Tawney and Chris's work has been deeply undervalued and really wanted to provide a way to highlight it in the context of their contemporaries and on equal footing. There's a, there's a temptation that because Agnes Martin is the best known of the three, Krissa and Lenore Tawney being the other two, that to think that Krissa and Lenore Tawney were influenced by Martin, you know, there's no reason to believe it only went in one direction, of course. What did you kind of intuit or learn or, I don't know, begin to think about? Ideas they shared that all three of them explored and in what directions those investigations went? Well, I think it's easier to talk about Chris and Martin as a group and then Martin and Tawny as a group. I don't see a lot of correspondences between Chrissa and Tawny. And I'll start with, with Agnes Martin and Lenore Tawny. You know, their relationship was so important. And one of the revelations I had in thinking about this show is that it wasn't Martin impacting Tawny, but, but the other way around. So Tawny has an amazing story and history at the Coenti Slip. She moved there when she was 50 years old and ended up working until she was 100. She studied at the Chicago Bauhaus and started, uh, when she moved to the Slip, really experimenting with new approaches to weaving. And when we start to think about the relationship of Tawny and Martin, what's really interesting is that it's towards the end of Martin's time at the slip when she starts moving to the grid and the grid that sort of comes to define her career with these really taut, thin lines. And some of the most exciting scholarship on Tawny right now, and I'll I'll, uh, point out the scholarship of art historian Suzanne Hudson, is tracing this relationship and how important we can think of the idea of weaving and thread is to the development of Agnes Martin's work. Another thing that's so fascinating about their relationship, too, is that Agnes Martin only ever wrote on one artist, and that was Lenore Tawney, and specifically praised Tawney's approach to felt line, so the idea that line sort of carries with it a deep emotional impact. That is Martin Tawney. Martin Crissa, there's a work in the show called Small White Letters that that seems to be interested in some of the things Martin is interested in or would be interested in. I'll say this about Crissa, too. And she's another artist like Lenore Tawney who just hasn't had the attention she deserves, in part because she was working a bit more in isolation. She was a woman artist. She came from Greece, so she had moved to New York from Athens and didn't have a, a large community. Now, Krissa is is an artist that is included in the show in large part because of the formal dialogue and specifically because of her relationship with Agnes Martin. She didn't live in the slip, but she spent significant time there with Agnes Martin. 
And I was really interested in thinking about her work in terms of this conversation with abstraction and nature, because for her, it specifically had to do with light. So all of her works, specifically the reliefs in the show, like the work with letters and then the, the, the works with the plaster molds based out of the cardboard boxes are all about how light moves across the surface. And we can certainly think of the location of the slip and the light reflection off of water being an important part of this idea of looking out into the water and thinking about abstraction. Do you think Chris's cycladic book works, three of them are in the show, all from 1955, do you think those were important to Kelly? I don't know. I wish I did know. And I wish I could figure out if he saw them. But I think what you're saying is that, again, all of these artists, they're so, you know, we often think about Kelly, Agnes Martin, even Krissa working in isolation, like doing their own thing. And suddenly, when we think about the Coenti slip as this kind of organizing place, it's fascinating to start to think about the connections and conversations that could have happened. For example, another amazing kind of revelation to me in looking at works by the different artists is looking at Chris's cycladic books, right, which are white tablets. And then look at the Agnes Martin, the book. Not only do they share a title in the book, but they also deal with these sort of white surfaces. And then go to the Robert Indiana painting called Coenti Slip and look at the Agnes Martin, the book. Not only is it the sim- a similar palette, but we also have these sort of paired white forms anchoring the composition. Well, I'm glad you brought up Robert Indiana because he's, you know, just speaking as my critical or former critical self, I've never quite known what to do with him. And you went out and found, I think, three Indiana loans, work work that aren't in your collections. And so that's now that you've pointed out the relationship between Indiana's Coenties Slip and, and the Chris and the Martins, I can't stop seeing it. What relationships between works in the show do you see between the other two Indianas? Okay, great. Well, it's, there's four, I should clarify. Oh, the fourth is on wood. I'm sorry. Yeah, the fourth is um, just, just on a panel. Correct. So let's go to the, the two works with the stenciled lettering. These are some of the earliest works that Indiana made using the brass stencils, right, that he goes on to explore throughout his career. When Indiana moved to Coenti Slip, he worked for Lenore Tani, who employed him as her assistant. Lenore Tani's studio was an old sail-making loft, and it had these soaring ceilings. In fact, one of Tani's tallest Fiberworks is over 37 feet tall, right? These are these big spaces. So when Indiana is working there, he comes across the stencils, these old stencils that were used to label sales that sort of become a part of his work from the early 1960s. So that's an amazing connection, this kind of maritime kind of stuff that's around the slip that a lot of these artists are drawing from. You can also see that that big the composition with the two ginkgo leaves called ginkgo is a gesso on a really thick board, which we think is a salvaged sort of piece of wood from from the slip. And there's another example of a form that seems to come from the natural world. I mean, ginkgo is, you know, pretty suggestive. <laughs> ginkgo is very suggestive. So that this piece is pretty remarkable, too. I'm absolutely in love with it uh, for many reasons. So 
At the end of the slip, there was a park called Jeanette Park where these artists would hang out. And in that slip were ginkgo trees. So this form is directly derived from the landscape around this neighborhood. And this piece, too, is very symbolic for Robert Indiana. It represents his close relationship at the time with Ellsworth Kelly. So the idea of the intertwined ginkgo leaves is about their close relationship. And we can see that, of course, formally, this idea of these sort of clean contours very much deals with the same language of form that Ellsworth Kelly was exploring. Uh, yeah, you can't miss it. The plants in Kelly's Teasel and possibly slash probably in the 1955 Untitled Younger Men. Boy, you'd never see that in Midtown. <laughs> no, no, exactly. <laughs> well, Michelle White, thanks so much for speaking with me. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.